Evening, friends, <clears throat> fellow Dhamma-farers, children of the Noble Ones, oh, medium-sized beings. <laughs> it's a particularly uh, beautiful, clear night this evening. I was just out under the stars a bit, and uh, some of my favorite stars are Visible, the Pleiades and Aldebaran are directly overhead. And if you know where to look, you can just make out the Andromeda galaxy. It's 25 million light years away. And I think there are about 300 million stars in it. We can't wrap our heads around that. And it's big if you, it's faint because it's so distant, but if you could. You can make it out, it's a fuzzy patch. If you could see all of it that's visible, it's the size of about, I think, five or seven full moons in width. It's a big thing, a whole other galaxy. Amazing. <laughs> I suppose I should actually start the talk. We could think of a retreat as being like a, a period of you know, research, like uh, field work. We're doing field work here. We've got this uh, terrain as our, our own mind and body process and the world around us. We're, you could say we're uh, exploring, we're doing field work, exploring nature and uh, nature manifesting in our own body and mind and nature manifesting in the world around us. And we use this tool of mindful awareness as a, the tool for this investigation. And we have this objective, you could say, that we want to really learn as much as we can about what it is to be human, about ourselves, about the world, learn about nature in this way really in deep sense, to, to plumb the depths, to go be, below the surface appearances. I was teaching a retreat this past fall in uh, Australia in an area called the Blue Mountains. It's an area west of Sydney, a beautiful area there, some high plateaus and cliffs and um, eucalyptus forests. It's called the Blue Mountains because they produce this kind of, uh, the eucalyptus trees, there's so many, they produce this bluish mist, uh, kind of, uh, and, and it turns the air, this kind of, uh, this blue haze that sometimes is there. Very beautiful area. And I have a, a friend who lives there who's, uh, who does field work because he loves everything in the world. And um, he's the world's for foremost uh, authority or, what do you say, um, expert on a particular species of giant dragonfly. I think their wingspan is, is quite big, maybe six or seven inches. They're quite huge. And they live in these small swamps that are up on these high, they're, they're called hanging swamps because they're up high on these uh, high plateaus. But 
there's still the, the water collects there because of the, the geology and the, the kind of uh, terrain there. And, um, and so he has spent years hanging out in these little swamps, studying these dragonflies. And he studied, has studied everything else in that area and in a lot of the world. Like, I like to go for walks with him. And if I have a question about anything, he has an answer for me. He knows, it's like he's friends with everything, all of the plants and animals there. He knows them intimately. And uh, he has this, um, he exemplifies this kind of, he's, he has this open uh, relationship to the world and this incredible interest in and, and connection to it. He once was, he told me he was once out camping and, and a, it was either kangaroo or wallaby came, came near and... Um, and there was a, a little one, and I think the little one must have hopped out of the pouch. But for some reason, the kangaroo came very near, and he, he put his hand inside the pouch <laughs> of the kangaroo. <laughs> and the kangaroo just you know, let him do this. <laughs> you know, he just wanted to know, what's it like in that pouch? You know? <laughs> um, yeah, he just, you know, he just so connected and so interested in life and the world around him. And it reminded me of these quotations from uh, Albert Einstein, this great scientist we think of as, as really special. And he, he said of himself, I have no special talent. I'm only passionately curious. And he, he said, and there's another quotation I'd like to read. He said, there are two ways to live your life. One as though nothing is a miracle and the other as though everything is a miracle. My friend, I, I, he gives this, there's this feeling that he, he lives his life as though everything is kind of wondrous and miraculous. A beautiful way to go through the world. This is a quotation uh, from uh, a priest, a, a Catholic priest named Henri Nguyen a great teacher that I really love. He said once that the spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imagination, fantasy, or prediction. That indeed is a very radical stance toward life in a world preoccupied with control. I love this idea that we wait with this active, actively present to the moment. And this, this idea that we might uh, let go of, relinquish our preoccupation with control. Is it possible that we might be able to uh, adopt this kind of stance? I think it's a great description of mindfulness practice. This sense of, of just being actively present in the moment to the moment and trusting that things will reveal themselves just through that uh, relationship. It reminds me of what um, the teacher Suzuki Roshi, uh, often he wrote a beautiful mind uh, book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And he, he talked about this idea of having beginner's mind, and 
Some teachers call this don't know mind. We can be so confined and limited by everything we think we know. know, We have a lot of information in our minds. And we settle back into this receptive mode where we we receive life and we trust that things will present themselves beyond our ideas and concepts and beliefs about what is true, beliefs about what we're capable of, what's possible. And so if we think of a retreat like this as as field work, it's investigation of nature, that we're becoming really intimate with the nature of things. The nature of this body, this mind, this heart, the nature of the world around us. I mean, that's really what we're doing. That's all we're doing here is exploring nature, not trying to create something. And I think often in our lives, sometimes I think we feel a, a kind of Subtle, perhaps, at times, but at times a deep kind of disconnection with life. Disconnection with our own inner world, our emotional life, perhaps. And the world around us. And, and perhaps the modern life that we live in might, might kind of condition this in us. And I think sometimes this sense of, of being disconnected or... or it, sense of dis-ease in relationship to our own mind and heart and the world is part of what motivates us to come to a retreat to undertake what we might call a spiritual life, however we might think of that. You know, we so often we speak of, of nature, the environment, it's, as out there, you know. We, we go out into it. We're going to go spend time out in nature. So it somehow is the trees and the plants and animals, they're, they're out there and we can go out and be near them or in them or among them, but somehow as though it's separate from us. And it's, I think this, this relationship is so pervasive and, and it leads to so many problems and it may be leading us to our doom. And it's not true. You know, this is nature, this body, this mind. We are an aspect of the landscape. We are part of the environment. We come from it. We're supported by it. We will return to it. And, and I think part of us knows this and longs for that connection to that truth in some way. This is some words from D.H. Lawrence. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me that I am part of the earth, my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There is not any part of me that is alone and absolute, except perhaps my mind. And we find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surfaces of the water. The full poetic description there, but this sense I am part of all of this. My blood is the sea.
feet know that I am part of the earth. Earth walking on earth, earth sitting on earth. We use this words, these kinds of words uh, in meditation sometimes, but there's, there's a truth to that. It's all the same stuff, it just gets organized in different ways. Sometimes it shows up like one of these, like a Greg, and sometimes it's some other thing. So everything that we uh, encounter in our exploration in meditation is, we, we come to see it's just the unfolding of natural processes. And I think this practice, the unfolding of this path is a deepening, an ever deepening relationship with this truth. And as we begin to really understand that it's all just nature unfolding, it's all natural processes, then we give it back to nature. We give back what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And in doing so, we lay down a a burden that we may not have realized we were carrying, but when we set it down, it's such a relief. Many occasions in these few day, first few days of the retreat, we've been uh, referring to this teaching, uh, this core teaching of uh, meditation instructions that the Buddha uh, gave called the Satipatthana Sutta. Our instructions are drawn from this one uh, core teaching. Very complete meditation instructions. It's one of the most beloved uh, teachings, highly revered in in countries like Burma, at least. Instructions for vipassana, for mindfulness meditation. And this word satipatthana, usually called, we usually translate that as foundations of mindfulness. But uh, the way Pali works, um, words, shorter words are often combined, happens in other languages too. And so satipatthana is a compound of the word sati, which is the word for mindfulness, and the word upatana, which actually means establishment. And so um, establishments of mindfulness, which I think uh, my colleagues may have used that. And it's really a closer to the, the literal translation of that word. And, and I think there's, you might say, well, what's the difference? But there's, a, I think, a subtle, important distinction because uh, the sense then um, is this emphasis on the quality of awareness, the quality of mindfulness, establishing mindfulness, the emphasis more on that than on uh, any particular object of awareness. It's that this establishing oneself in awareness that's uh, what's key there, the sense of dwelling or abiding in awareness. And this is the key. And so we'll be talking and we will talk, I'm not going to go into a description of this teaching other than uh, that it Uh, to say that it breaks down or includes everything that we can experience, the entirety of our experience. There's nothing that we experience that's left out of this teaching. And we're uh, instructed to look at it through these four kind of, um, four ways of looking. And the teacher, Tan Jeff, calls it uh, the four frames of reference. So we look at experience in these, in these particular ways. And we've been talking about that in terms of, of 
uh, materiality. We look at physical, physical, um, the body, physicality in terms of body. We look at feeling tone, uh, vedana, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. We look at the quality of the mind in any given moment, the mind affected by uh, the presence or absence of certain mental energies. And then we look at all of it in terms of um, in terms of the Buddha's teachings, certain patterns that show up there. We look at it in terms of presence or absence of hindrances, in terms of factors of awakening and so forth. And I'm not going to go into that anymore. But um, the, 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 the aspect of it that I really want to touch on tonight is the fact that it includes everything. There's nothing left out. It's our whole life, no part left out. And it may seem obvious, but... If we were to leave something out, then our practice would never be complete and could not come to fulfillment ultimately. We can't exclude anything. So in this regard, we're not escaping from anything. (laughs) So it it goes back to this sense of, of, um, it's not about control. We're not getting a tool through meditation to control it so we only have the experiences we want to have or like. It's kind of too bad, isn't it? <laughs> be nice to think that's... I, I'm, I hope you weren't holding out any hope around this. That we were, the secret teachings, one of these days, will reveal that gives you this tool to have it only be the way we want. But not even the Buddha could do that. And so when we talk about freedom in relation to this, then it's, it's something other than getting it to be only one way, right? It's a, it's a different kind of freedom it's, and a kind of happiness that's not dependent on the conditions we find. It's a, a kind of independence and a kind of peace that doesn't depend on, on it being any particular way. That's real freedom. When I was in, uh, in high school, there was a book that was published at that time that I, I know many of you have read. Um, it was called The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. And it was, it was my uh, Bible at that time, you could say. It was a very um, important book to me and, and the, the couple of books that followed on from that. And I think it's at least 45 years ago when I first read this book. And, and there's uh, certain things that stayed with me. But this is a, a, some famous, a famous quotation from that that uh, touched me so deeply. I want to share with you. So this is the teacher, Don Juan, speaking to Carlos, who was his uh, student. That before you embark on any path, ask the question, Does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it, and then you must choose another path. The trouble is nobody asks the question, and when you finally realize that you have taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill you. At that point, very few of us can stop to deliberate and leave the path. For me, there's only the traveling on paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is to traverse its full length. 
And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly. And I remember this touched me so deeply and I wanted so badly to feel that way, to feel that I was somehow walking a path with heart and that I had this breathlessly, walking it breathlessly. I had this sense it must be possible, felt that it had to be a possibility, but no one seemed at that time to be offering me any paths with heart. And no one, no one seemed to have that breathless wonder in walking the paths that they had chosen. And maybe we come to a retreat like this uh, looking for a path with heart. And maybe some of us come because we feel like we found one. Maybe we found a path with heart here. And that can sound beautiful, inspiring perhaps. This journey on a path with heart. This walking it breathlessly. But then we go through a day like today and, and by now it probably can feel pretty long. And there may have been times where you kind of wondered what you're doing here today and what is this sitting and walking have to do with anything. And okay, maybe I'm walking a path, but I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. I just go <laughs> back and forth. We use the form of the retreat and, and this pared down kind of life we have here to keep things very simple. We take out the doing walk back and forth, so we're not going anywhere. We remove that, we take out the doing. We break this momentum that runs through our lives so much of the time. We can run on momentum for years, just keeping moving. Keeps us restless and, and sometimes may keep us stuck on a path that doesn't have any real heart. Momentum, this movement of doing, keeps us sometimes uh, from ever actually really showing up for our lives. And, and maybe we're fine, we've been walking a path or that we're walking a path that might actually be killing us, as Don Juan said, draining us of, of life, draining us of this wonder, of this sense that we might walk through life breathlessly. Might be killing that in us. great writer and philosopher, uh, Henry David Thoreau, put it this way. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. So we come to retreat like this and we spend our days sitting and walking. Nothing special. We do all the other things that make up a day, that make up a life. We sit, we walk, we eat. Things into the body, things come out of the body. We bend, we stretch. We see, we hear. It's just 
Oh, we do all the time. There's nothing special about it. We sit and we just sit. We walk, we just walk. And there isn't anything special except that we bring this quality of awareness to that process. We bring mindfulness to it. And this changes everything. And this allows us to actually show up, to actually meet our life. And, and the way we, the simplicity and the pace, the slower pace of a retreat like this, this gives us a chance to, to land in our life in a way that we usually are too busy to do. And it allows us to um, open to a level of reality, you could say, that is below the surface, below our everyday way of looking at things and and the world of all of our ideas and concepts. So uh, I love this one. Thoreau said, I wanted to front the essential facts of life. We're getting to the essence of things here. And, And we want... He said, I wanted to learn what it had to teach me. That's what we're doing here is we're letting it teach us because it can teach us a lot if we slow down enough to pay attention and listen. And then this natural wisdom starts to shine forth. It reveals itself from inside. There's a, a really crucial understanding to bear in mind when we when we come to meditation, from the perspective of meditation, all experiences are equal. Because what we're interested in are, are what we could say are the universal or common characteristics that apply to all things. It's this, the essential facts of life to any experience. And the great thing is, is that there's nothing that arises that we cannot be mindful of. And even better, nothing that arises, um, everything that arises, anything that arises, can serve as a vehicle for insight, for wisdom and insight. This is cool. That means it doesn't matter. You don't even have to like it. Especially you don't have to like it. So nothing falls out the scope, outside the scope of our practice, outside the scope of meditation. So the practice is always inclusive. It's never exclusive. This doesn't deny the truth of, of our preferences, right? We have preferences. The great way is not difficult for one who is unattached to their preferences. Rid of them, but we see them. They're just preferences. It goes back to this idea that we're not getting control in order to have our preferred experience be the one that happens. And, and following on from this, it's so hard for us to learn this, that our, our practice isn't about having certain kinds of experiences or attaining or achieving certain special kinds of states, even though sometimes things that we would call special states happen. And, and, and they can 
um, bolster our faith at times and feel like something's happening, something cool happens. But it's not about having cool, blissful, beautiful experiences, refined states of mind. They're great. But if our happiness is dependent, our freedom, our, our okayness, whatever you want to call it, if that's dependent on having certain kinds of experiences, or it's a setup for suffering because uh, we won't find freedom that way because no state lasts. Nothing lasts. No special state, no sublime state. None of it lasts. Conditions are always changing. And when the conditions change and, and things change, then we're back where we started and there's no real freedom there. So the freedom the Buddha was pointing to is a freedom that's possible in any moment no matter what's going on regardless of what's happening. So it's not found through control, not found through having things be in any particular way. And we say this over and over, say it to ourselves, say it to you, because it's so hard for us to actually believe it's true. So the freedom then is found through coming into alignment, into harmony with the way things are. So we're not here to get something we don't already have and we're not going anywhere other than where we are. I think um, modern life, these modern times and the, the culture we live in, certainly here in the United States, is, is so oriented around a kind of acquisition, acquisitiveness. And, and this is not new, I don't think it's uh, new, but it, it's, it's kind of reached um, kind of an exaggerated place. And, and, and our culture is so oriented around getting and having things and experiences. And, and so often, as a result of this, our happiness, our sense of who we are, sense of uh, what success means, of being successful, fulfilled, has to do with the things we've managed to get often revolving around that. Maybe less true for those of us who would choose to come and spend time on a retreat like this, but it's worth looking to see, um, really look and see how we orient our mind and heart and our lives. A while ago, well, it's quite a while, I think, somewhere between 15 and 20 years ago, probably closer to 20 now, uh, after I had moved away from uh, the Bay Area, I used to live in San Francisco in the 80s. I was visiting and uh, there was a, a teacher who was giving a, an evening meditation, you know, at a place in Berkeley. And it was gonna be a, this was a monk, so there was gonna be a bit of devotional practice, some chanting, and then a period of silent meditation, and then, uh, the teacher, the Ajahn, was going to give a talk. And uh, I had the evening free and I was able to go. And, and I remember um, these, these words that uh, were the first words at the beginning of the talk. The Ajahn said, I've been a monk for 25 years now and I want you to know that I haven't gotten anything out of it. <laughs> now this person is still a monk now over 40 years. 
But, you know, it was a great opening line, really got our attention. <laughs> well, what's up, you know? This, the, the preliminary announcement of the decision to disrobe, what's that, what's that about? You know, someone who has totally dedicated themselves to following the, the Buddha's teachings and this path, this, taken on this life of uh, simplicity, a very austere uh, way of living by, by most of our standards. In this uh, Theravada tradition, um, the uh, ordained Sangha is dependent uh, daily on offerings of food. You don't get to keep food afternoon. And you don't handle money. You can't go out and get it. So if you're going to eat, someone has to invite you for a meal or put something in your bowl if you're wandering through a village. I've lived that life for a period of time. And you accept what's offered. You don't own anything except for that bowl and a set of robes. Really simple life. And this, this teacher was internationally known, highly regarded. Inspiration, just their presence and inspiration to others. Someone I'm sure many of you know, or practice to it. Is saying, well, I, I've done this for 25 years, I haven't gotten anything out of it. You know, what's up with that? You know, he wasn't saying, he had this calm and bright energy, seemed very happy and contented, confidence there. You know, he went on in, in his talk to explain, and it, it seems so obvious, but he said that the, the value that he had found in choosing that lifestyle, living that way, hadn't got, come from anything he had gotten, but everything he'd let go of, everything that had fallen away. It's from the teacher Ajahn Sumedho. The way of spiritual life is a movement away from the distraction of attaining or acquiring. It is a relinquishing, a letting go. And it simplifies our lives, freeing us from that which is unnecessary. There's no judgment or rejection. It's just pure mindfulness developing in the present moment. The only place truth can be found. And, and it sounds so obvious, it's, it's, of course. But then it's worth looking at our attitude and our approach because we can spend a lot of time and energy over a lot of years in pursuit of certain kinds of experiences. Trying to attain special states that we either imagine or perhaps we, we had at some point. And one time I was... I was living as a monk in Burma and I was practicing on a long period of, uh, an extended period of retreat, much more than a month. And, and I remember I had this experience one night. It was as though I had the mind of the Buddha, it felt like. Just an experience I'd never had before. It seemed like every, the mind, infinitely, all possible, all things could be known, this infinite power of mind. It didn't last. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when it went away. Like, what happened? And I spent a lot of time over some years trying to get that baby back. 
And I was, you know, okay, I was sitting like this and I'd eaten this and I was doing, I was just following the breath, just the in-breath and then just the out-breath, just this way, trying to just tweak it. It seemed like I must be able to duplicate those conditions. But the conditions that go into producing this moment right now as it is, you would have to trace everything that has ever happened since beginningless time. Create that and it's gone. Those conditions are gone. It's never this moment right now, never been here, never going to be here again. I remember one time, Saida Upandita my, was my teacher part of that time, and he said once, he said, that which did not exist takes birth has its life and disappears, falls away. Each moment, that's what happens there. It's never been here, never going to be here again. Feel that? Uh, There's wonder in that, isn't there? Possibly. And you know, maybe we can kind of get it back a little bit (laughs) once in a while, but usually not. And ultimately, whatever we get, value, results, progress that comes in this practice comes from what we let go of or abandon, relinquish, put down, give back. And we realize the end of suffering by abandoning the cause of suffering, not by getting something, not by getting anything at all. This quotation I heard a long time ago, which very likely is from Jack Cornfield. It's so a Jack thing to say about meditation retreats. But I don't know for sure, but some of you might know. But he said, talking about coming on retreat, he said, or whoever this was said, this isn't the shopping mall, it's the dump. <laughs> it's good to keep this in mind. Or what do you, in, in Britain at least, they say the tip, right? The tip, the place you go to put out the trash, wherever it is. Think of it as a dumpster. Now this, this goes against our conditioning in so many ways because we're not so inclined to see letting go as the key to freedom and happiness and success. You know, we're not taught this way of looking at things very much of the time. But this is what life will teach us if we take the time to listen. And so following on from this is this, uh, this f- sense of the Buddha uh, describing his teachings as going against the stream. This goes against the stream. And one way can, we can think of that, uh, the stream as the stream of uh, the current or energy of desire, of wanting in the mind, of craving, of grasping. And when we follow that stream, when we flow with that current, we... Uh, find ourselves seeking happiness in pursuit of objects or experiences or things in which we imagine we'll find fulfillment, lasting happiness or peace. And we get very fixated on the objects of that wanting and they, they seem so promising some of the time at least. Because of that, the fixation on, on the, the object, we don't two things that happen. We don't feel the energy of the wanting, which is actually unpleasant. We really touch it. 
And we don't see that, that it's an endless thing because no, whatever we get, how long is it before we need a new whatever it is? How long does that sense of fulfillment? What we don't see is that the, the, actually the, the best thing about getting the thing we've been wanting is, is that the, the wanting falls away. That's, that's what feels good. Oh, it's such a relief, that wanting. But then it, you know, it comes again, it comes back. And we just keep at it because it's not ever satisfiable. We just keep at it till we run out of time and energy. And so the Buddha's teachings running against that stream, and then the, the understanding of this is that rather than flowing with and following the energy of desire in this endless pursuit, we just look at it directly, actually feel it and get to know that energy so that we can understand that there are limitations inherent in following that, in, in using that as our strategy for happiness and fulfillment. And so the Buddhist gives us this chance to make a trade. He said, we can trade a lesser happiness for a greater one. We can exchange this endless pursuit of transient pleasures for a path that leads to a real, deep, true kind of happiness, a lasting kind of happiness. And he spoke to this in the Dhammapada in this very simple way. He said, if by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience a greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. Teacher uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu goes by the name Tan Jeff. And he said it, put it like this, an intelligent sacrifice is any in which you would gain a greater happiness by letting go of a lesser one. In the same way you'd give up a bag of candy if offered a pound of gold in exchange. In other words, it's a profitable trade. But most of the time, we want to keep the candy and get the gold, (laughs) just in case. Because we're afraid we'll give up any kind of pleasant experience, pleasure, and, and we won't have anything because we don't really trust it. And at least we know candy tastes good, even if we're willing to admit that it's a somewhat transient pleasure. And this gold, what is it? We don't quite trust it. It's dangled out there. It's possible. This is from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, the great teacher and translator. To move from desire to renunciation is not, as might be imagined, to move from happiness to grief or from abundance to destitution. It is to pass from gross entangling pleasures to a more exalted kind of happiness and peace, from a condition of servitude to one of self-mastery. Desire ultimately breeds fear and sorrow, but renunciation gives fearlessness and joy. Who wouldn't make that trade? Who wouldn't trade fear and sorrow for fearlessness and joy? So this this sense of renunciation in this tradition, in this practice, is is seen as so important because it's understood as, as the practice of freedom. 
practice of happiness and joy. And the ultimate fruition of it is this uh, greatest possible kind of happiness of, of a deep abiding peace, an unconditional kind of happiness. The energy of desire constantly is telling us that there's something lacking that we don't have, that we need to be happy, to feel complete, that things are not good enough now, that we're not good enough now. The demands of the wanting mind are endless and each, each desire promises that this is the thing that's gonna do it and that the satisfaction is gonna last. And this energy of this endless wanting, it's like a thief and a liar. It steals from us any chance at contentment in the moment. And it lies to us like a con artist. It lies with these false promises. Promising happiness, if only. It sets us up, and I think it's Joseph Goldstein who, taught, who says, it sets us up to have this if only mind, if only. Oh, if only I could have this or not have this. Every time we follow this flow with this stream of wanting, we reinforce this sense of insufficiency and of lack as though our sense of fulfillment and ease is determined by conditions, it just reinforces that. Now, of course, we, in, you know, when we sit here these days, we see what we're up against with this. You know, we're, we're undoing some really deep, old, powerful conditioning. Maybe it's lifetimes old and, and we don't let go of that easily. We work so hard, we work so hard to f- get things so that we can come to a retreat like this. You know, maybe this is something we've worked at for years to set our life up so we can come on a retreat and we just want to have some little peace and we sit down and we've got this raging heart and mind that just won't do what we want and this restless movement and this uncomfortable body and this back and forth between what we want and don't want, what we like and don't like, and it's never quite right. And there's so much in our experience that's not acceptable. One of my colleagues, who was a teacher of mine, said when, when she first began meditating, she figured somewhere between 95, 99% of her experience was unacceptable to her. <laughs> I mean, how much of you has happened today that was not acceptable? This is not okay. So much pain in that. You know, and this, this practice, this path that we're walking, it acts us, it demands, it asks us that we meet these minds and bodies, meet this heart, really directly. It it demands what I think of as a kind of radical intimacy. It's not always easy to do and it's uh, at times it can feel like the hardest thing we could ask ourselves to do, isn't it? Just to be here at all. 
You know, it's what we're here for, but it isn't always a whole lot of fun in particular moments. And, and this process has ups and downs and we go through everything. And there's times when it feels great and times when we just have to summon everything we have just to be here at all. So often we approach our, our meditation, this practice as though we're, we're setting out into battle and we create a situation where we're in contention with our own mind, our own heart. And, and we relate to this mind and body often in this adversarial way. I know at least I, that's where I, where I started out. It wouldn't do what I wanted. It wasn't any good. It was a bad body and a bad mind. It was unlovable and wrong. Somehow I had a lot of stuff around beliefs around that. So, so it was this project, this thing I had to fix. We, how often do we undertake uh, this practice and come to it with, we, we see ourselves as a project that we need to work on and fix. Self-improvement, we gotta fix it. These selves are, they're not fixable in that way. That doesn't mean transformation isn't possible. <laughs> but it's just, it's such a, an unkind way to approach our practice, to approach our lives. We relate to our experience with judgment and criticism. But our practice requires this intention to understand rather than to judge. We need acceptance rather than struggle and resistance. And we need kindness instead of blame. Kindness more than anything else. I think it was, in a, again, in a talk that Joseph Goldstein was giving once, he, he quoted this, this one line that I think he took it out of um, some, um, some list of, of um, things from the samurai, the code of the samurai. I think that's where he got it, but uh, the, the, the uh, words there was, I make my mind my friend. I make my mind my friend. And if we get nothing else out of our time here, then some sense of this as a possibility that we might have a mind that is our friend, then our time will be extremely well spent here. And I didn't start out feeling that way. I think when I came to this practice, I would have said that my mind was my enemy. It seemed to be doing everything to mess me up. I've seen a radical shift in that over the years. One of the greatest gifts I can point to. I can say truly, honestly to you that my mind is my friend. It's my best friend. I was sitting here a year ago. I was sitting where you are instead of up here for the two months. And, and I like to walk, you know the path, the flat kind of one that's up here on the, on the hill just behind the hall. It's quite a long path. And, and that was one of my favorite places to walk. And in the afternoons I would walk there and there, uh, I mentioned I'm very fond of these little golden crown sparrows. And there were two or three of them that would come every afternoon 
It was part of their, their rhythm of the day. They would show up and they would feed on the hillside there near where I was walking. And, and uh, I felt a lot of friendliness and I wished them well and I admonished them to be careful. And, uh, and they, there was a lot of friendliness towards them. And I don't know how they felt about me, but I, I, they were my friends from my point of view. And then, and then they weren't there. And I felt kind of lonely. I missed my friends. But there was a bush along the path. So I asked the bush if it would be my friend. I don't know if any of you ever ask a bush to be your friend. <laughs> and the, but the bush said, yes, I'll be your friend. And then I asked myself if I would be my friend. And I said, yes, I'll always be your friend. When I was living in San Francisco years ago now, I used to volunteer for sometimes in the, in the, over the summer into the fall uh, with a program uh, that was studying the migration of hawks, these big raptors through the area of the Golden Gate. And we were based in the, in the Marin Headlands, just on the, this side of the Golden Gate Bridge there. And we would set up in these... Um, these disguised, they call them a blind, a a little kind of miniature house thing, a a little place to be inside, to be hidden. And we had these special traps, different ones, um, to catch these hawks um, with lures, things that would lure them in. And uh, we were trying to establish their migration patterns and, and preserve habitat. So I didn't like to hassle the hawks, but it was for a good cause. And and one of the things I had to learn, because we would, we would put a band around their wrist and um, we would, you know, check them for parasites and you know, weigh them and, and uh, you know, get some data about these different birds. And um, I had to learn how to hold a, a red-tailed hawk. They're one of the biggest ones. They're not as big as the turkey vultures we see around, but they're really big and they're really strong and... Um, you know, they'll put a talon right through your thumb, nail and all. And, and if they're afraid, they'll, 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 they'll try to, to get away and they could injure themselves. So you have to hold them with this incredible combination of firmness and gentleness because they're birds and they have hollow, wing, hollow bones in their wings and bodies and um, you don't want to injure one of these beautiful animals. So this this combination of incredible gentleness and firmness. That's a good way to think about holding your own mind and heart like you'd hold a bird. So we don't necessarily let it run all over the place, but we don't, uh, we don't uh, crush it by holding it too tightly. And we don't relate to it as our enemy. So I'll uh, leave you this evening with some words from uh, one of my teachers uh, named Sayada Ujotika. How can you make your mind your real friend? By practicing mindfulness and by really watching your mind, by really paying attention throughout the day. Then you will see the truth about your mind. And when you see the truth, 
gradually it will become purer and purer and it will become your friend. We'll sit quietly for another minute or two. Thank you for listening this evening and thank you for your practice today. I I bow to you with real gratitude, appreciation, and um, respect for your efforts. And we have some time for a little over half an hour for some walking meditation. And uh, please be welcome for the chanting. We'll um, be continuing with the... uh, Karaniya Metta Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on kindness tonight. <laughs>